What's up, Stitches? It's episode five of season two of So What, which means we are past So What's 30th episode, which is really crazy and wild. That is a lot of episodes. So much historic needlework that's been explored. What a time to be alive. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining me on this journey. Today's episode is all about Navajo or Diné weaving, a subject I've not gotten to on the podcast at all yet, but it's something I'm really excited about. I'm interviewing Dr. Kathy McCloskey, an adjunct associate professor at Canada's University of Windsor and a freelance curator. She also was a weaver for several decades and does all sorts of needlework. Her research focuses on globalization and gendered injustice, social justice, intellectual and cultural property rights, appropriation, and the political economy of collectibles with a geographic emphasis on historic and contemporary production by Native American artisans living in the Southwest United States. In short, she's an expert on Navajo weaving. I'm really interested in Kathy's work not only because she's researched and written about Navajo weaving for decades, but also because she's working on a new book about it that is quite groundbreaking. It basically looks at Navajo weaving through a much more global framework. But before I talk about the book, I gotta tell you all about Navajo weaving, right? Yes, I do. And also, I need to say that this episode is much more of a history lesson than a deep dive into specific objects. Kathy tells the really important story of an indigenous people and the larger implications of textiles, how changes in material and resources affected the textiles the Navajo made. Images will, like always, be up on the So What website and social media, but we don't talk so much about specific objects in this episode. Okay, now that I've said that, let's talk about the Navajo themselves. The Navajo also go by the Diné, which means the people. They are from the Four Corners region of the United States, meaning the area consisting of southwest Colorado, southeast Utah, northeast Arizona, and northwest New Mexico. According to their creation story, they evolved through at least four underworlds before emerging in the mountains in the region known as southern Colorado. From there, they converged in Dineta Old Navajo Land, an area bound by the Continental Divide and bisected by mountain ranges. Archaeologists, though, suggest a different genesis, in which Diné ancestors crossed the Bering Land Bridge, ultimately migrating along the western edge of the Great Plains. Navajo rugs and blankets have been some of the most sought-after indigenous textiles for the past 150 years. The Navajo peoples were formerly a semi-nomadic tribe who then settled in the southwest in the 10th and 11th centuries. Once they became settled, the Navajo people began weaving, learning from the Pueblo people how to build looms and produce fabrics on a large scale. The Navajo textile designs included geometric shapes, diamonds, lozenges, and zigzags. Before 1800, Navajo weaving involved natural colored wool in black, white, and gray tones. A limited amount of dyeing was done with roots, herbs, and minerals. But in the 19th century, aniline dyes were used to create a wider variety of hues used in weaving, including colors like red, orange, green, purple, and yellow. The textiles were, and still are, made on upright looms with no moving parts. And when I say that, I mean that there are no treadles or foot pedals, but the weaver manipulates the two sheds with her handheld tools. The weaver sits on the floor during the weaving and wraps the finished part of the textile underneath the loom as it grows. And I'm sure you want to know all about patterns and motifs, so let's talk about that too. 
First, there's the cross, which represents Spider-Woman and her teachings. In Navajo mythology, Spider-Woman is the constant helper and protector of humans, and it is she who teaches the Navajo to weave. So early Navajo blankets feature the cross, but it's considered taboo to place the cross within a diamond, square, or triangle pattern because that would trap the Spider-Woman's work. Because of that, sometimes you'll find a figurative or literal hole woven into the piece. Another important motif is the four sacred mountains of the Navajo homeland. This is often represented by diamonds and or triangles. A common design is whirling logs, which is often mistaken for swastikas, which is so not great. So the logs were originally chosen as symbols of good luck, but as you can imagine, the Navajo didn't include them in designs after World War II. And Navajo weaving also often includes zigzags, which represent lightning. Lightning embodies strength and power for the weaver, the Navajo culture, and even the object itself. But Navajo weaving is not just limited to those motifs and designs. Inspiration is also taken from anything from pictographs to prehistoric pottery and even things like trains, book spines, and advertisements. So now let's get back to a little bit of history. In 1822, the Santa Fe Trail opened and commerce expanded massively. Trading posts and railroad services led to a huge expansion in the market for Navajo woven goods. White travelers and settlers wanted to get in on the beautiful Navajo textiles. The textiles went from being for the Diné themselves to being merchandise sold to those who visited trading posts on the western frontier. And until 1880, Navajo textiles were blankets. Then, as more and more of these textiles were being sold to outsiders, rugs were woven instead. Kathy will get more into those details about the market and the implications of the sale of Navajo weaving in the interview. Kathy's book will be called Why the Navajo Blanket Became a Rug, Excavating the Lost Heritage of Globalization, and it discusses how the Diné were dramatically affected by rapid transformations occurring in agriculture and textiles, two of the three largest post-Civil War domestic industries, as the United States transitioned from an agrarian society to a modern industrialized state. In short, it basically offers a new interpretation for how and why Navajo weavers were cheated by economic and agrarian misjustice for more than 150 years. Kathy's blurb does a better job of explaining the book than I could, of course, so I'm going to read the blurb to all of you wonderful people. Here it is. Quote, the book places Kathy's research within broader debates of Native American women's labor in international and comparative political economy. After 1890, the split wool tariff permitted duty-free imports of carpet wools from 30 countries, while offering high tariff protection for the finer clothing wools raised by domestic growers, according to the National Association of Wool Manufacturers from 1870 to 1943. Free trade in carpet wools triggered an escalation in textile production by thousands of weavers as reservation traders sought profitable ways to market the coarse, unstandardized wool clip. Until the 1960s, nearly all textiles were acquired from weavers by weight. Women received credit from three to eight times the current value of Navajo fleece, and their textiles were shipped to regional wholesalers to pay down traders' accounts. By 1930, the reservation was badly overgrazed, and the government ordered a reduction of livestock, ostensibly affecting the silting up of the newly constructed Boulder Dam spanning the Colorado River. The carpet-wooled chura sheep, which provided the best wool for thousands of female hand weavers, were targeted and destroyed. 
This horrific event still resonates, and many Diné refer to it as cultural genocide. Weaving declined from 30% to less than 3% of the reservation economy. The wool tariff and stock reduction stories are inextricably linked. Currently, over 20,000 weavers encounter double jeopardy due to the competition stimulated by the investment market for the pre-1960 pound blankets, in tandem with the knockoffs imported from 20 countries. Double jeopardy has created serious problems, contributing to the potential for cultural fragmentation as weavers are no longer able to provide for their families in this culturally appropriate way." End quote. So basically, Kathy's work brings this really important issue to the fore, and it's super relevant for me and anyone who likes historic needlework because Navajo weaving is a hugely important American art form, one that speaks a lot to indigenous art making and the changes that occurred once Europeans started colonizing the region. And it's a topic I've never even come close to discussing on the podcast, but one that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. So yeah, there we are. And now, without further ado, and without me rambling anymore, let's hear from Kathy. And just before we begin, I gotta say that for some reason in the recording, every time I speak, it makes a horrible sound. So I had to cut out my oohs and ahs and awesomes and whoa cools. So I don't sound enthusiastic in the interview, but trust me, I am. Anyway, here's the interview. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for being here. It's seriously such a pleasure to talk to you and to learn all about what you do. So thank you. Well, thank you for inviting me, Isabella. It's great to meet you virtually. Thanks. Okay, let's start with the first question. Can you tell me more about the Navajo or Diné people? There's about 350,000 Navajo or Diné, and they, many prefer to be called Diné. It means the people in the Navajo language. Over half the population of 350,000 inhabit a reservation of about 27,000 square miles. That in, a, in an area that straddles the Arizona-New Mexico border in the southwest United States. As pastoralists uh, for centuries, livestock and wool production, weaving, and horticulture provided subsistence. Some authors claim the wearing blanket was the mother from which all external trade developed. So they were very well known for their weaving before the Anglos took over and trading took over trading too. During 1863, to open their homeland for settlement, the government dispatched troops to enforce a scorched earth policy. Over 8,000 Diné were driven to Bosque Redondo or Huelti in Eastern New Mexico. That was about a 350 mile march. They, they call it the long walk. It was absolutely brutal, absolutely brutal. And it was done over a period of time to gather up these 8,000 people. So they attempted to farm this alkaline soil. There was, the water was bad. It was so bad and it was costing the government millions of dollars back then. So they finally signed a treaty and they allowed the Diné to return to their original homeland, but they cut the amount of land by over 80%. This is the story of what happened to most of the native groups during the 19th century, right? They were driven off their homeland. It was just horrible. So one third of the population died during the confinement. And after their release in 1868, the government issued sheep, so they would become self-sufficient again, and they licensed traders to buy and sell Navajo products. All of the tribes had to become self-sufficient. They had to learn how to work, right? 
So they wanted everybody to get waged and they wanted all the women banished to the household, right? The women are supposed to be housewives. Well, that's not the way it worked out for the Navajo people because what women did, women owned most of the sheep and all of the goats. So that was, that was the local economy, right? So how did you come to research Navajo weaving? My interest in weaving was an outgrowth of learning to sew when I was eight years old. Um, I sewed most of my clothes growing up. And I learned to weave shortly after moving from California to Canada. But I went from Denver to California and we moved to Canada in 1970 when my husband was hired by the biology department as an ecologist. But by the mid 1970s, he was doing research in desert ecosystems and we were based primarily at Saguaro National Park. And we spent five months a year in the field. Well, while we were in the field, uh, I was also active with the Weavers Guild down in Tucson. I did, I took, and I, especially taking uh, spinning and weaving uh, and dyeing workshops, things like that. And then I went to school part-time too when we were on sabbatical down there in the mid seventies. Then I finished my BA back here at Windsor and went on uh, to work on my master's. And by that time, I had discovered the Lorenzo Hubble Papers housed at the University of Arizona Collection, Special Collections Library in Tucson. The Hubble Trading Post Papers, Hubble Sr. is considered to be the czar of trade and the father of the Navajo rug. So it went from blanket to rug under his tenure. The family's papers cover a century's worth of information. There's two tons of Hubble Papers. I've been through about half of them. So they're owned by the National Park Service because they're a central uh, trading post at Ganado, which is in the Arizona part of the reservation, uh, was their main, it's now a national historic site. So you can go visit it. Yeah, just over the border from New Mexico. So I finished my MA and I went on for my doctorate several years later. And I got my, doc, my PhD in 1996 at York University in anthropology. So um, my revised dissertation is published by University of New Mexico Press, as swept under the rug, A Hidden History of Navajo Weaving. It highlights the importance of Navajo women's non-waged labor in anchoring the local economy. Women owned most of the sheep, all of the goats, thus most of the wool and the pelts and the goat skins. The Hulp family was probably the most powerful trading family on the reservation for over 50 years. So um, between 1890s to 1940s, 80% of those records are business records and business correspondence, right? There's a lot of personal correspondence too. So people that have worked in those papers generally work with that correspondence. Their records are kind of a barometer of what was going on as far as Navajo trading goes on the reservation. 80% of the accounts in Hubble's ledger books are Weaver's accounts. They're in women's names, but the women are typically identified according to their closest male relative. So this is how women get disappeared. They're not waged. Their names, you know, they have Navajo names, but, you know, uh, anyway, they're identified by their closest male relative. Weavers were given credit, not cash, and their textiles were put on the wool scale and wholesaled by weight for over 60 years. When I did my interviews in the 90s on the reservation, I interviewed women who remembered their mothers or their aunties or grandmothers' rugs being put on the wool scale. They were wholesale, they were acquired from weavers by weight, and they were wholesale by weight. I cannot think of a more effective way to impoverish a hardworking people than doing that. Mm-hmm.
but but why why was there so much weaving and why was it being sold by weight for so long all right well that leads to what i'm working on today the hubbles shipped over 200 tons of weaving this one trading family can you imagine they shipped 415,000 pounds of navajo weaving between 1893 and 1912 this is one trading family now they they did they owned by that time by the mid by 1910 or so they owned 10 or 11 posts but all the traders were doing this so i'm thinking gosh you know weavers were receiving so little for their work and they weren't getting cash they were getting credit you've talked a bit about this already but how was navajo weaving made and sold navajos weave on a four selvage uh, they weave four selvage textiles on an upright loom and the looms and the weaving tools are oftentimes made by families family members but you can also get weave, uh, looms and weaving tools if you don't have a family member who can make them now, oftentimes it's the men the men make the tools um the loom and weaving tools relate to Diné cosmology many of the motifs and symbols are found on petroglyphs and in their baskets and basket making among Diné precedes weaving by centuries so they were basket makers before they started weaving with wool um women traded their saddle blankets and rugs to the traders to acquire groceries and household goods for their families and um the textiles then were sold to uh the, well they were wholesale to the regional wholesalers who had to find markets for them off reservation right mm -hmm. and then you have the tourists coming in by railroad initially and then by car say after 1900 the the, the tourism started to build up but in the meantime there were um curio dealers that were selling indian made goods on the east coast and in chicago and some of these larger cities there were these and, and of course there were a concentration of them down in the southwest united states because most of the products that were being made by native americans at that time that became popular curios were made in the southwest u.s because there's so many tribes located down there thank you for that now please tell me about your upcoming book oh my gosh this is uh, a herculean effort I my forthcoming in this forthcoming book I'm not only working in one archive I'm working in six whoa exactly and it's primarily government documents and business records I worked at the Baker Business Library at Harvard in the in the uh, Bigelow carpet company records Bigelow was the largest carpet manufacturer in the world they imported tons and tons of carpet wool annually and for a while they were buying Navajo wool, but then it became too unstandardized, and that becomes part of this story. But the evidence substantiates how, as pastoralists, Diné were affected by free trade during the 1890s. That's the decade the Navajo blanket became a rug. That is not a coincidence. Wait, so what does it mean for a Navajo blanket to become a rug? Well, th see, the Navajos lost their customers once the u.s government put them on this reservation they had been trading for centuries with other tribes and actually it, that, that some of that did continue but mm. but it was very much truncated by traders because not only navajos had traders anglo traders coming in but so did the other tribes too they all did right there were posts on all these so that disrupted the native trading networks that had existed for centuries right okay that makes sense thank you all right go back to the book please 
1897, the Dingley tariff reinstated high duties to protect clothing quality wool. So the U.S., the, the um, wool, wool brokers in the United States and uh, wool producers, manufacturers, classified wool into three different types. Classes one and two are the clothing wools. And class three is carpet wool. Totally different animal, literally. Okay. Uh, but the imported carpet wools class three stayed on the duty-free list, you see. And, and people don't realize that. And then the, the role that that played in this incredible escalation in productivity by thousands of Navajo weavers, mostly women. Um, so by... By 1900, by 1890, actually, Diné were the only carpet wool growers in the country. And for obvious reasons, that's what the women needed to weave good textiles, okay? However, their flocks produced less than 4% of the carpet wool needed by the textile manufacturers. By 1900, they were using one half million pounds of raw wool a day. Between 1890 and 1930, the Bureau of Animal Industry and a few traders and uh, superintendents to the Navajo people because the reservation by that time was, had been expanded somewhat because of these sheep. So they were getting back some of the land they'd actually previously had. But the, the, uh, the superintendents started to bring in new breeds of sheep. And they brought in over 10 breeds of sheep at various times and tried this sheep, you know, in the Western jurisdiction and another breed in the Eastern jurisdictions. It totally compromised the gene pool. It ruined wool for weavers. Clothing quality wool carries a great deal of lanolin. It's crimpy and it's soft like merino. Merino are kind of the gold standard for the finest wools for clothing. It's impossible to weave a good rug when you've got clothing quality wool as part of your, the product you're trying to hand process, card with the carders and spin on a Navajo drop spindle. It's, it's just impossible. To produce a good product and not only that water is a critical shortage on the navajo reservation you have to wash that fleece very well several times in order to get the lanolin out of it so you can spin it and the staple is very short whereas the churro sheep they have these beautiful fleeces that are very easy in fact churro wool is so greaseless it doesn't need to those are the carpet wool sheep um it doesn't need to necessarily be washed before prepping it for weaving. The government is muddling with what the Navajo is going to produce because what they wanted the, the growers to do was to raise the livestock, the type of breed or the breeds of sheep and, and cattle too, that were demanded by the national market. So they wanted them to shift uh, the breeds of sheep that they raised. All right, but the Navajos didn't want to do that. They strongly resisted it. So in the process of trying to breed up the sheep, it wrecked the wool for weavers. But it also, it became so unstandardized, it ruined the wool for manufacturers too. So Navajo wool sold for far less than other wools grown by uh, Anglo growers in the rest of the country. But Navajo wools sold typically for 30 to 60% less than the wools grown by the clothing quality. So these people were getting, becoming more and more impoverished, even though they were working harder than ever, right? World War I intervened. It's the only time that Navajo wools were in any demand at all was during World War I. The government had to try and um, accumulate vast amounts of wool. And so the U.S. was getting these giant orders for wool yardage for soldiers' uniforms to be used overseas. But 
all of a sudden the allies said, okay, we've got to get back on our feet. We've got to get our manufacturing up to speed again. And by 1921, they had more or less. And um, they stopped buying US products. Overnight, globally, wool values dropped 70%. Because the national market didn't want Navajo sheep, they didn't want the wool, they didn't want the sheep either during the 1920s. The traders were hardly buying any. So guess what happened? That they continued to breed on the reservation. And the reservation became overgrazed. The New Deal started putting all these people out who were uh, expert text soil, soil uh, researchers and things like that. And they mandated uh, reduction on the Navajo reservation and they targeted the carpet wool sheep, the churro sheep that the weavers needed. And weaving went from becoming 30, from being 30% of the reservation economy in 1930, within two decades, it was less than 3%. That stock reduction destroyed Navajo subsistence. It drove a stake into the heart of Navajo culture and things have never been the same. And when they slaughtered that livestock, it, it just brings tears to your eyes when you read the testimonies from people of the Navajo people that saw their livestock destroyed before their eyes. Oh, geez, it's like hard to even think about how tragic that is. But thank you for telling me all about that. I've just learned so much. Now, I want to know a little bit more about you, if that's okay. Can you tell me more about your favorite needleworked objects and the shows you've curated? I curated five textile exhibitions. Uh, the first one was uh, Fiber Tradition Transition, and it was um, Essex and Kent County's quilts and contemporary Canadian quilts. And Robin Morey, who is one of the most beloved quilters from Canada, whose work is actually international, um, she wrote the, uh, she did the contemporary quilts, but I did the quilts and weaving historic part right and so um, sometimes she accompanied me but I just had a ball going around collecting up all these quilts from families and the family history I of course fell in love with quilts then I did a show uh, titled um, Fields and Flowers Fabric Landscapes of Prince Edward Island Ooh. oh that was filled with quilts and coverlets and hooked mats and embroideries it was just if I don't say so myself, it was phenomenal. I had phenomenal people to work with. And uh, it's one of two national galleries in Canada, but unfortunately museum's assistance program took a hit. We couldn't tour the show. We had 12 beds, historic beds and the quilts. We set up rooms. We, we took over most of the gallery. It was a great experience to do that show. And then I did an embroidery show that was for the London um, Museum uh, back in the late, let's see, late night. 1990s and that was um the hand not idle was the title of the show Great title. And it was a family that owned a, a beautiful home and all the women's needlework then i did a big show for the um burlington arts center and in conjunction with the arizona commission on the arts first nations fine weavers where we toured um about 30 navajo textiles up to canada uh, the, the pieces were all for sale and when they sold we got another one for the weaver and the Hubble Trading Post also, also buys rugs. They still buy some rugs. And they um, loaned us some rugs too. And then they would replace them as the, the rugs sold. That toured to about 15 venues over mm -hmm. a three-year period. Yeah. You've worked across 
so many different types of needlework media. You know, I just kind of fall in love with whatever I'm working on at the time. And now for the question I ask every So What guest, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Needlework is very calming. Mm-hmm. It's very creative. Yeah. And oftentimes it's celebratory because you're making, you might be gifting yourself, but you're also, uh, if you're making something as a special gift for a relative or a friend, um, you know, a family member, it's, it's such a wonderful, there's nothing like a handmade gift because it's from the heart. Too true. And finally, um, how can people learn more about your work? Do you have anything you'd like to promote? Tell me everything. I was research director on the PBS documentary, Weaving Worlds. It's the only documentary out about Navajo weaving that is actually directed by a Navajo who's completely bilingual. So it's it's a wonderful documentary. And the, um, the, uh, to get the funding a lot, they pulled a lot of work from, we pulled a lot of work from swept under the rug to get the funding to do it. So we had 90 hours of footage that had to be edited down to an hour, you know, but it's won a lot of awards and it's been, it's still screened periodically. So it's called Weaving Worlds. I've got a couple of papers in the digital commons uh, through the Textile Society of America. And then, um, but I do want to mention two recent and very important publications by Navajo weavers. Um, Well-known weavers, Barbara Teller Arnalis and her sister, Linda Teller-Pete, grew up at Two Gray Hills Trading Post. That's where the Cadillac rugs come from, uh, at Two Gray Hills. Her dad, Sam, was a, a trader there for over 30 years. They published Thrum's books out of Loveland, Colorado, has published two books. The first is called Spider Woman's Children, Navajo Weavers Today, uh, 2018. And the second one is titled How to Weave a Navajo Rug and Other Lessons from Spider Woman in 2020. Both books are exceptional, but the latter one has a lot about the importance of weaving in terms of Navajo cosmology, the loom, the weaving tools. They all have terms in Navajo. They relate to sky and earth. Um, Weaving calls the rain. Father sky hovers over mother earth. It rains. It fertilizes the soil. It's about reproduction. See, all this has been all underground. Well, Kathy, thank you so much. I've learned an incredible amount from you, and I so appreciate you being here. Yay, interview! I learned so much from Kathy, and I hope you did too. I really like Kathy's approach to research, and that her research is also informed by her many decades of weaving and her work as a curator of various exhibitions. I'm so looking forward to her book. I am hyped to delve deeper into Navajo weaving and to learn why and how Navajo weaving shifted from blankets to rugs and to understand the economic implications of all of this because I know literally next to nothing about economics, but I want to learn. I am so keen to learn. Also, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but see images of Kathy and Navajo textiles and a variety of relevant sources and links to Kathy's publications on the So What social media and website. You know this already, but I'm going to say it again like I do every episode. It's at So What Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or SoWhatPodcast.com. Now, something Kathy and I didn't talk about, but which is related and which I'm really excited about, is the Adopt a Native Elder program. This is a nonprofit that supports Indigenous Navajo elders by providing food, services, and medical supplies. 
This is great because, as Kathy discussed in the interview, the Navajo people were and continue to be immensely screwed over by various forces. The Adopt a Native Elder program is really rad because through it, you can support Native elders by buying handmade Navajo rugs made by the elders themselves. They're really beautiful and super technically impressive. What a joy, right? Ugh, love it. And what a wonderful thing. I'd really recommend that you give the program a look. And also, obviously, go and learn even more about Navajo weaving in Kathy's books and articles and the two books she mentioned at the end of the interview. All of that stuff is on the So What social media pages, too. Okay, that's all I've got this week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for always listening. I appreciate you so much. Now go out and stitch some stories and get angry about the destruction of the Chura sheep. Bye! Thank you.